Reading from Luke chapter 1, verse 67 to 80. And this father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from, from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those of who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that was swore to, the, to our father Abraham to grant us that we bring delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness, righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, who will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will be before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And, to the, ch and the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Well, thank you, Sean, for that. Have you got your Bibles? Please turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 5. But have you heard the old poem, "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. What a great poem. I forget the rest of the words. There's more to it. But for me, it's, it's really nostalgic. It's the poem my mom used to read to me every Christmas Eve before bed. And it's what I do with my children every Christmas Eve before they go to sleep. We read that poem together. But it doesn't really say much about Christmas, does it? It talks about mice and sugar plum fairies. And... But music and poetry has been used for thousands of years to describe the story of Christmas. And in particular, the birth of Jesus for a very, very long time. And there are some carols that have been sung hundreds of years ago. Good Christian Men Rejoice was written in the 14th century. We have, O Come, O Come, Me, Manuel. And that's, a, that's even been popular even longer. That was based on a text written in the 9th century, 1,200 years ago. People have been singing songs and writing poetry to remember the birth of Jesus Christ. And you know the truth is, songs were written even further ago than that. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next four uh, Sundays of Advent. <clears throat> we're going to be looking at some of the central characters in Scripture who, when they encountered the story of Christ, burst out in song. They responded instantaneously to the King of the Kings and the Lord of the Lords, the Savior Jesus Christ, with songs. 
And we know that some of these first songs that we see in Scripture were even repeated as far as, as, young, as, far as 129 AD. Believers were singing the angels' song. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace and goodwill to all men. When we sing carols, it reminds us, I don't know about you, but when you sing carols, what do you think of? Are you like, oh, no, carols again. It reminds me that for thousands of years, People have been singing and celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. And we get to join in with them, the chorus, praising Jesus. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next few Sundays. We're going to do that. We're going to be looking at the songs of Christmas recorded in the Gospel of Luke in the hope that as we do, we will feel the excitement and the wonder of those first Christmas singers as they felt, as they watched the events unfold that led to the birth of God's only son, Jesus Christ. And so, there are four songs that are in the New Testament, in the book of Luke, that Luke documents. And we see this morning, we're going to be looking at Zechariah's song, and that's called the Benedictus. And then we have Mary's song, which some refer to as the Magnificat. And then we've got the angels, angels worshipping Jesus when he's born we're going to be looking at that on December the 17th. And then after the Christmas play, the last Sunday on New Year's Eve, we can celebrate together Simeon's song. <clears throat> and so that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. But Luke, if you turn to Luke, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 1 verse 3, he says, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. It seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you. Luke is writing us an orderly account of the events that are undertaking, describing the birth of Jesus Christ, describing the life of Christ. And yet he doesn't start with Jesus. He starts with Zechariah, the priest. He starts with the angel Gabriel appearing, appearing to this priest Zechariah, describing the birth of his son John the Baptist. I think this is huge, this is significant, because Luke is describing to us that God is ushering in a new era. Now John the Baptist, he's going to be the last of the prophets, and a new era is going to come with Jesus himself. Jesus himself says that John the Baptist, none other has, has been greater than John the Baptist. And yet, this new era is being ushered in. John doesn't need, he says, John says, I'm not even worthy to tie the sandals of Jesus Christ. This new era is coming in with the prophets of God. And you see, there's been 400 years of silence before this point. 400 years where the people of God haven't heard of God, haven't heard from him. The last time a prophet Usher mentioned anything was 400 years ago. In the Old Testament, the last book of the Bible is Malachi. And we see between Malachi and now, there's been 400 years. 400 years is a long time. If you go back in the history of Canada, 
how much history has happened in 400 years. How much history has happened in the, in, in, in the world for the last 400 years? A lot has happened. <clears throat> and it's the same with the people of God. Yeah, a lot has happened since Malachi to now. A lot of hurt, a lot of suffering. We've seen empires come and go. Alexander the Great took over the ancient Near East and wanted to Hellenize everything. He wanted to make everything Greek. That's why the New Testament is written in Greek. Things are changing. In them 400 years, we've seen various leaders oppose the Jewish people. Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the, the Greek leaders, said to the Jewish people that they weren't allowed to worship God. They weren't allowed to follow the religious practices. They couldn't observe the Sabbath. They weren't allowed to sacrifice on the altar. They weren't allowed to do the Jewish rituals and traditions. And so the Jewish people are hurting right now. And then you've got Herod, King Herod. He builds this beautiful temple, which you think, oh, that's nice. He, builds, he rebuilds the, the temple of God. But he also builds many other temples to many other pagans. And so the people are hurting. The people are crying out to God. And there's been 400 years and they're almost saying, where is God? Has God forgotten us? The promises that God had sent are said of, of a savior coming, where are they? Are they coming true? And Luke says in verse five here, in the time of King Herod, he wants us to know that the people are hurting, that the people are crying out to God. The people are saying, where is God? And we see various prophecies that were foretold. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. Isaiah says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Where is this? Why hasn't it happened yet? About another prophecy pointing towards the coming of Jesus. We have Micah chapter five, verse two. But you, Bethlehem, is saying that the, the Messiah is gonna be born in Bethlehem. Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and ancient times. The people are saying, where are these promises that God has given us? Why are they not coming true? They're looking, they're saying, has God forgotten? Yet we know that God hasn't forgotten. God does not forget. God is faithful. As we've been looking over the last few weeks, God is faithful to his promises. And if God is faithful, he cannot deny himself. And yet the people are crying out. And so we see here in verses five to seven, in the time of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulation blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and so, and they were both well on in years. These are dark days for the people of God. But it tells me this, that God appears to Zechariah, that he cares for the individual. The fact that Zechariah is mentioned in person, he could have, Luke could have spoken about any number of things. And he starts his book looking at one person. They're going through a hard time. 
They're crying out to God. They can't have children. He's old. And yet this Zechariah is ministering in the temple. And in verse 11 to 17, it tells us, Luke tells us that the angel Gabriel comes and Gabriel comes to Zechariah and saying, you're going to have a baby. You're going to have a son. He's going to be a, the last prophet. It's going to be pretty awesome. And Zechariah's like, what? I'm far too old for this. Ain't nobody got time for that. And so Zechariah, the angel says, because of his, his unbelief, he doesn't believe in the messenger of God. Gabriel, angel Gabriel says, hey, listen, because of your unbelief in God, you're going to be, you're going to be mute until the birth of your son. And that's what happens. And then in verse 19, we see, He says, the angel answered, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you, tell you the good news. And now you will be silent, not be able to speak until this day happens because you do not believe my words, which will come true at the proper time. Do we believe in God? It's, it's one thing to believe in God. It's another thing to believe God. Do we believe God? Do we believe the promises in our lives? I believe in God, but I also wonder, do I believe God? Do I believe the promises that he has installed for me as a person? There's a big difference. And nevertheless, we see, if we turn over to the passage that Sean read this morning, Luke chapter one, verse 67 onwards, John the Baptist is born and they want to call him Zechariah after, the, all the women want to call him Zechariah after his father. And he writes on the little tablet, no, call him John, as the angel said, and his tongue is loosed. And he sings out in praise to God this, this, this prophecy, this song. He's praising God that everything that God has said has come true. I've had a boy He's had nine months to reflect on this. Imagine being silent for nine months. Must be pretty hard, eh? You can't speak. Some people say that you can't even hear. He's had nine months to reflect on all his mistakes, on his doubting in God. He's had nine months to sulk. Him ministering in the temple should have been the highlight of his life, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. They were about... 40,000 priests at that time and only one could go and minister in the temple. And so he gets this once in a lifetime opportunity. Everybody's waiting outside for him to do his duties and he comes out and he's mute. Like what an own goal that is. Goes in the temple and he doubts God. He's been preparing his whole life to serve God. And when God appears, he kind of messes up, right? And so he's had nine months to reflect on this. I like it. We, serve, we have Advent. Megan was saying this morning that Advent is a great time for us to reflect on the message of Christmas. With the hustle and bustle going on around, how many of us stop and just think, what is Christmas all about? Zechariah has had nine months to reflect and then he comes out with prayers. And he says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, 
because he has come and has redeemed his people, he, he praises. And the first thing he does, the first things in his mouth, he says, he just praises God. After nine months, after nine months, if I'd been silent for nine months, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of things I'd want to say to my wife, you know, my kids. The first thing Isaiah, Zechariah does is he just praises God. But that isn't even the best thing. You see, he's just had a baby boy. Not to have children in that culture would have been quite shameful. Would have been embarrassing. And he doesn't even focus so much on his son. The prophecy here is all about Jesus Christ. He praises the Lord. This Benedictus focuses on Jesus. And he says, praise be the Lord or blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come. Now there's a word there, come. Uh, in your Bible, some of your Bibles, it may say visited. Now this word is a very important word. It's a, very, it's a word full of meaning that we lose in the English. It's a brilliant word, which I think we, we just don't get the visited. What does that even mean for us today? But for the original readers, this would have been a significant word. That God is visited. The word visited, the verb is the verb form of a very important noun, which is episcopus. Episcopus, and that's the word here used because he is episcopus and has redeemed his people. Episcopus is where we get the word bishop. And the word episcopus can be broken down into two words. Episcopus can be broken down into two words, the root and the prefix. The root is scopus. It's where we get the idea of seeing, of to see something, vision. And it's where we get the word microscope. With a microscope, what do you do? You look down at the detail. You focus in on the detail. And it's where we get the word telescope. A telescope is where you look at the big picture. So between a microscope and a telescope, you get to see everything. Episcopus, so you get the first word, the root is scopus. And then you have the prefix, which is epi. And epi just intensifies the root. Very big vision. Episcopus is a huge word. In the Old Testament... The word could be used to refer to God's redemptive acts. God sees things that are going on. Exodus 3.16 tells us, The Lord God your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely episcopus. I have visited, I have seen you, and seen what is done to you in Egypt. You see, God sees everything. It's where... A good example would be supervisor. Now, supervisor Ralph is a supervisor for living stones and he has maybe 10 men working for him. And Ralph sees all that's going on around him. He's not just a visor, he's a supervisor. He sees all. <laughs> and so... He sees what's going on and he acts. If the guys aren't doing what they should be doing, he steps in and he, he does something about it, Sebastian, right? Supervisor. 
It's the same thing. God, it's the same with Episcopus. God sees all and knows all and hears all. And so when God says, praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come, he has seen, he has heard, he knows, he knows what's going on. He knows what's going on. The people, the people are crying out, God, where are you? It's been 400 years since we've heard you. Where are you? Where's your promises? Where's the Messiah that you've promised? And now Zechariah is saying, God has seen all and he's sending his son, Jesus Christ. And my son, John the Baptist, is ushering in the way for Christ to come. Luke is describing here that God hears the pain of the people and he sees what they're going through and God is acting. God saw what happened to the people in, in when they were in slavery in Exodus. We've looked at that over the last few months. He heard their pain and heard their cry and he released them out of bondage and hopelessness. And so when we see this, when we can read this song of Zechariah, it's the same for us. Christ came to release us from our hopelessness and our despair into a new life in Christ. 1 Peter 2, verse 25. Peter says the same thing to exalt Jesus Christ. He says this in 1 Peter. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer, to the supervisor, to the episcopus, of your souls. Jesus sees what's going on in our lives. He's leading us. He hears us. He's hearing us. He's guiding us. He's guiding you. This is what Zechariah is prophesying. He's rejoicing, praise be to God, because God sees all and knows all. And he's sending his son, Jesus Christ, to deal with our hopelessness and our despair and our pain. This is the true meaning of Christmas. Not about Santa with a belly full of jelly or whatever. But God sent Jesus Christ to earth as a little baby boy, knowing one day he would grow up and he would die on that cross so that if we put our trust in him, then he would restore us from a place of hopelessness and despair and pain and a lost eternity in hell to a place where we can have life. How cool is this? And that's all in one word. How rich is the Bible? Praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come, he has visited, he has seen, he has heard, he has cared, he has acted and has redeemed his people. Luke tells us that after 400 years of searching, the people are looking for the Messiah to come, and he is coming. The people are still looking. We see Simeon in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. It says that Simeon looked for the consolation of Israel. And Anna, in Luke 2, 38, Anna, this prayerful woman in the temple, she's been praying her whole life, is looking for the redemption of Israel. People are looking for the Messiah and Zachariah is saying he's coming. He's coming any moment. We were gonna see the promises of God fulfilled in our lifetime, Zachariah is saying here. And as we enter our Christmas time, it seems to me that there are far too many people 
who believe God is absent, that God is silent, that God does not exist or answer prayers. Zechariah they've, and Elizabeth, they've been unable to have children, are living in this 400 years of silence and no one has heard from God yet. Yet Zechariah knows that Jesus Christ is gonna come, Emmanuel, God with us. His name, the name of Zechariah, literally means God has heard again. And then he goes on in verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. How many of us this morning woke up and praised God for our salvation in Jesus Christ? He woke up this morning and said, yes, Jesus Christ has saved me. And you get out of bed and you're all like happy and joyful. Who did that this morning? No, I imagine not many of us did, right? You wake up this morning like, oh, man, it's so cold and so, it's too old, my back hurts. <laughs> Salvation is having the knowledge and intimacy with God. And it's so easy for us to take it for granted, to take Jesus for granted. And this Christmas time is a great opportunity to rejoice and to praise that we have salvation in Jesus Christ. He's raised up a horn of salvation. A horn of salvation, the horn is just like a strength, a power. It's not like a musical horn that you might have, but it's like a horn of a, of a bull. If you see a bull running towards you with his horns, you, you'll know about it, Right? You don't just stand there because a bull is, is powerful and strong. And it's saying here that Christ, Jesus, is going to be strong. He's going to defeat all things. The salvation is going to have, he's going to defeat everything in his path. The author knows that the Messiah is going to be, Zechariah knows that the Messiah is going to be from the line of David. Jesus Christ is from the line of David. We see this in the genealogy of Matthew. Everything here is pointing towards Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is going to come and deliver. He's going to save. What's he saving from? He's going to deliver over Rome. He's going to be strong and powerful over, over the Rome. He's going to be powerful enough to, to defeat, you know, the, the powers, the King Herod. He's going to be Powerful enough to sit on the throne of all things. He's going to have deliverance over death. Jesus Christ with our salvation is going to deliver us from a lost eternity. He's got the power to deliver us from Satan himself. Jesus Christ, the horn of salvation, means that the Messiah will be strong to save us from our enemies, the devil. And one day he will achieve all of this on that cross and say, hey, it is completed. What's our response to it? Verse 74, it says that the Messiah will come to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness 
before him all the days of our lives. Many people look at the story of Jesus Christ coming as a children's play or just a a make-believe story. We've even losing the the meaning of Christmas these days. They take the word Christmas and it's, it's called, you know, we don't even have Christmas on cards anymore. They don't say Merry Christmas. You know, we're taking Christ out of Christmas now. Season's greetings, we might say. What a load of rubbish. We're taking Christ out of Christmas. We can't take Christmas for granted. Keep preaching Christ in Christmas. The horn of salvation, Jesus Christ, is real. More than a story. He's the reason for the season. But let me tell you humanity's greatest need. Humanity's greatest need is Jesus Christ. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It tells us in Romans. And if we say 1 John 1 verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And Romans 6.23 tells us, The wages of sin is death. Humanity's greatest need is the horn of salvation. Humanity's greatest need is the salvation of Jesus Christ. There's no neutral position. You either follow Jesus, you either believe what he did on the cross, you either accept him as your Lord and Savior in your life, you either get blessed with eternity, you either get Christ living in you and through you, or you don't. There's no middle ground here. Humanity's greatest need is Jesus, and many people don't even know it. We even have a real enemy that seeks to destroy us, that seeks to pull us down. It says in 1 Peter 5, it says, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Humanity's greatest need is Jesus Christ, who has power even over the devil himself. So we can praise God this morning. We can sing with Zechariah and say, praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And we can go down to verse 74. And he has enabled us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And he will guide us in the way of light and not of darkness. Humanity's greatest need is Jesus Christ. God sees all and knows all. He knows you. He knows what you're going through. He knows your struggles. He knows your encouragements. Jesus, God knows everything about you and he's there for you. But verse 75 tells us that we are to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Why does God want us to be holy? Well, why does God want us to be holy? Let me ask a question this morning. Why does God want you to be holy? To reflect him? 
Oh, it's like a floodgate now. I didn't think anyone's going to answer there. All of a sudden, to be in relationship with him. Someone said something else. To be set apart. Amen. Oh, I love it. Come on. What's that? Because God is holy and he's called us to be holy. He's called us to be set apart. In the back? Because he's holy. God wants us to... Pierre, one more. Because he wants us to be happy and when we're not holy, we're not happy. All of them things. God asks us to consecrate ourselves before him, before our holy God, so that we can continue walking in his righteousness and we can have a relationship with him. How many of us are seeking that holiness in our lives today? How many of us are seeking that horn of salvation, rejoicing in that salvation that only Christ can give us? And walking in that holiness all, right, all the days of our lives. That's something that we can keep encouraging us. As Christians, we have the wonderful opportunity to be on fire for Christ. Just to love God with all of our hearts and just to wake up and say, I want to, God, I thank you that you're in my life. And then you've saved me from a lost eternity. This is why Zachariah is praising God and singing out in song because he knows that Jesus Christ would do all of these things. How do we respond this Christmas time? When we hear the Christmas message, well, we can praise out to Jesus Christ and thank him for our lives and we can continue to seek God's presence in our lives in power and might through his holiness.